to the window, a podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Robert Moss, the author of Barbecue, the History of an American Institution. And I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor of the Post and Courier. Today's episode is going to be the food town edition of the window, since we're exploring the big question of what makes a particular town or city uh, you know, eligible to be called a food town or a, a true food town. And uh, Hannah, I think this sort of... We sort of got into this because you were recently were interviewed by uh, the Greenville News or Greenville Online, depending on which format you get it in, uh, for a story about Greenville. And I think the, the reporter's asking the question, uh, is Greenville now a food town? And, uh, well, I guess what what do you, what do you think? Is it now a she, – actually, she didn't say a food town. She said a foodie town. You know, it's funny be because she didn't use that expression with me yep. on the phone. And as soon as I read the story, I thought, if you're using the phrase foodie town, mm-hmm. you are not a food town. Yep. <laughs> like, it just was so cutesy and gross. So that, that's one quick way to, to distinguish between a food town and a non-food town. Um, you know, I was in Greenville recently, and it looks and feels more like a food town. Mm-hmm. For sure. I mean, it's the, some of the places I've opened up in this last year are are really exciting um, and and really in line with what you would expect from a town that that was serious about about its restaurants. Um, and and we do mean that. I think we do mean it's a commercial food town yep. as opposed to like oh all the cooks there are really talented um, home cooks. I yep. mean. Um, so there's what I told her, and I'm I'm really <laughs> curious to, to to hear what you're going to say on this. So I felt like there were four elements you needed for a food town. Um, I think that you have to have like a collegial and collaborative group of culinary professionals. Charleston's a great example of that. Um, it, you know, it got started because everyone knew and supported one another. And I think that's true in a lot. Of, and then we can work through, but I think it's true in a lot of, a lot of food states. I think where these towns that are aiming for food town status sometimes sometimes error is they think one celebrity chef mm-hmm. a food town makes. And I think it really requires more of a teamwork. I, I absolutely agree 100%. And even before I – I was thinking of this before I read the article because uh, I'd seen the headline and, and and it was just, you know, before I op- popped the thing open. And the, the thing about it, I think you're totally right. It does – it takes far more than one chef. I think the real key is this group of like-minded people who come together and I, I, I can draw parallels between that and other types of communities, like arts communities or um, literary communities. And and that, if you look at you know, with my background in literary studying literary history, you see these co- these towns of writers where like you know, suddenly uh, it will explode with this ferment of, of action of activity. And I, I think it's because you get a, a bunch of people together enough that they then begin to feed off each other, inspire each other. I think that's a key element. Right. I think a that's a great time. analogy because if you don't have something like that, you get something like Ted Kaczynski, right? Yeah. If you're if you're writing alone <laughs> in a cabin in a woods, it, it doesn't have any of the sort yeah. of energy or insight that you get when there's a whole community. Or if you're just a really serious, talented chef by yourself, then you're really just sort of <laughs> grooming your own you're not getting I, this, this cross-pollination of ideas not and at all and I, I you know and I don't begrudge any chef his or her employment decisions yep. and then, you know that's a perfect place for a chef to be at the end of her his career possibly but if you're trying to build a community it needs a community so all right so two so okay well one we agree on that two you need to have adventurous and receptive diners mm-hmm. And this is where I was concerned about Greenville, because as I told the reporter, the rap on Greenville, at least in the low country, is that the diners are much more conservative right. um, and that they just don't tend to trust the chef as much. I think, you know, I don't know where that comes from in Charleston, but it, there is more just kind of this venturous streak that if the chef says like, hey, you know, I got this Asaba hog that I did mm-hmm. that people 
Well, yeah. let's put our finger. I will come back to that one in a second. Okay. Let's go for your other ones because I think that tie may tie into the other ones. But let's, let's hear your other okay. two qualities. Right. So I said that there needs to be a certain amount of diversity. And by that, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily mean, you know, food from Peru and food from Persia. What I mean is <laughs> you need to be able to get good food at all hours of the day mm-hmm. um, and maybe not 2 a.m. But what it means is you it can't just be a fine dining after six o'clock. That's yep. not a food time. You need to be able, when you get up, to get a really good cup of coffee. You need to get a really good sandwich at lunch. Um, and so that's our part of diversity is that there needs to be price point diversity. Um, the best food towns, um, you know, this was happening when I lived in Asheville. They, they're they're active both high and low. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I want to be careful about that phrase, high and low. But, you know, that you can... Big ticket and small ticket. Big yeah. ticket, small <laughs> ticket, um, you know, a humble and ostentatious, whatever the heck it is, but, um, modest and immodest. I mean, you need to cover both ends of the spectrum. That I felt was really um, kind of the Achilles heel for, you know, obviously... Well, I'm looking in Texas, like in Dallas, there was just so much emphasis on the higher end Mm -hmm. for a long time. That doesn't mean the, the, what are we calling it? The opposite end (laughs) wasn't thriving. I mean, Dallas is home to some fantastic, um, obviously, you know, immigrant food cultures. There's, and there's also great Tex-Mex in Dallas. But when the city kind of painted a, a portrait of itself, it was much more interested in the high end. I would, I would definitely agree on that point, Mm -hmm. which is that, it's not just a bunch of fine dining restaurants that serve really fancy dinners that make a city a, a food town. It sort of has to be you go there and you eat well from the time you get up through all, all meals of the day and you leave thinking there's still 20 more places I haven't eaten yet because I just I've ran out of time. Yeah. You know? And for me, the final piece of, of being a food, a food town or a food city is it has to have something that is distinct and unique. It has to have a distinct identity, mm-hmm. and that could be drawn – from history, it could be drawn from culture, it could be drawn from the land. I mean, you know, you could have the best, you know, caviar yep. in all of Tennessee. And whatever it is, there needs to be something I feel like that is distinctive about your identity. Yeah, and I, that's a, definitely one of my well, hobby horses, which is it's, it's you can't just be doing the same thing they're doing in every other well, in, you know, high end food <laughs> town. And, and, and why would I go to Montgomery, Alabama to? eats the same kind of food I could eat in Nashville, Tennessee. Exactly. It, it, it does have to be something different. And it doesn't, I don't think it has to be drawn from the town's heritage necessarily. I mean, that's fun. But for instance, Vegas is a great food town, yeah. you know, and it had, they have a very distinct identity um, and that works. And it doesn't mean it's not necessarily based on the history of Vegas. In fact, when you go to Vegas now, because I always like to eat steak in Vegas, that's not the easiest thing to find yeah. anymore. But it has a very distinct identity. I mean, that is somewhere where you can eat well at 3 a.m. Yeah, it's people in D.C. go back and forth about Washington, D.C. and whether it's a food town or not. Mm. I always thought of it as a food town just because when I go there, and this is going back 10, 15, 20 years, it was one of the places where there was such a diversity of food I couldn't get anywhere else, like Ghanaian food or just, you know. Yeah. And that's changed a lot in recent years where more and more there's more and more international diversity in, in food. But for a long time, that was one of the distinctive things about going to D.C. is you could get just about anything under the sun in a way you couldn't get anywhere else. And that has nothing to do with Washington, D.C.'s history necessarily, but it has a lot to do with the nature of Washington, D.C., which is that you know, people come from all over the world. It's the nation's capital, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I think, I mean, D.C. is another example of a place where for a long time they felt the diners weren't adventurous yep. enough, and then that was really a hindrance. Well, that's to loop back then, because I was, I was wanting to hear the other ones before I got back to the adventurous. I think yeah. it's almost a chick, chicken and egg kind of thing. It's not like you have a, a city, oh, and just there's a population <laughs> of diners who are adventurous, and therefore it becomes a food city. I 
think it, and the Greenville article, which was really interesting because it just made me think about a lot of uh, things, um, the author sort of was going through this progression where we were getting a lot of hotels and then a lot of tourists coming in, therefore we're getting restaurants. Is there a tourism effect? I said, well, yeah, but then you might get Orlando, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, though actually it's starting to change a little bit in Orlando because it's becoming a more diverse city. But for a long time, you wouldn't call Orlando a food, <laughs> a food city because it's Hard Rock Cafe and everything right. else that tourists eat. So it's not just that. And that made me think that it, it's almost like, you know, you need you need that draw. You do need people coming there. You need tourists, but then you need the that group of of chefs who will help drive adventurousness. Right, and, and I because I think as you know, you have to be very careful about letting hotels lead this culinary revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think we've done well in Charleston because the culinary you know reputation was established. So hotels are coming in realizing that that they can um, take advantage of that, and they're hiring good people and. It's like they're sort of in in the smart ones are deferential to the culinary scene that's been established. Yeah. But if you're counting on just, you know, Ritz Carlton money or Marriott money to No, that that's a way to have like the everywhere everywhere USA kind of high end and and these places there's they're not terrible, but there's nothing unique about these high end st- chain steakhouses. It's it's you know, and that's what people are complaining about Greenville. I think some of the chefs said they're not adventurous. They want to go eat at the steakhouse and right. all that. Well, that's the sign of of your well, you're just pulling in regular people from all over, <laughs> right. and they want to eat what they eat. They're there for some other reason. They're not there to explore the, the food. We live through that though in, in Charleston. And, and, you know, I've, I lucked into writing about food in Charleston just as sort of this boom was happening. Um, around 2007, 2008. And up at the time we started writing about it, everybody, the people writing about food here, or, or, or so the, the small group of foodies, um, were complaining that it was such a boring food scene. It's all ship, shrimp and grits. It's all catering to the tourists. And in some ways it, it was. Make, putting shrimp, putting grits on the menu was a big deal in the 80s and 90s, but then it sort of became this, this everybody expected to, to get it. Yeah. But what happened was we then had a bunch of really adventurous cooks and chefs. So you had your Mike Lottis coming in, your Sean Brock's coming in, um, your Frank Lee, who had been here for forever, but uh, he uh, it was part of that first wave, but he really was able to engage with them, groom local farmers. They, they, were, they were able to take that base and then start doing interesting things and start converting people over to a new way to think about food. Oh, right. It's really interesting. So maybe maybe the, the adjective adventurous is, is misplaced because I don't want to create this impression that we have dining rooms filled with yep. people and pith helmets. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's not like that. In fact, it's somewhat the opposite. I think actually we have to credit some of guys like Frank and Mike Lotta with being personable, being on the yep. floor and and earning people's trust, which is kind of the different difference and adventurous. Yep. But um, so, I mean, the, the, the hospitality in Charleston was helpful and, and that's true again, you know, I was in Asheville to, to witness a similar, mm-hmm. uh, thing and it's that same idea. I mean, the, the, the guys had to be out on the floor. They had to really win people over. Um, so maybe it's, maybe these people weren't, aren't necessarily adventurous just cause they want the endorphin rush. I mean, yep. maybe they're adventurous because they believe in this person, but the, the diners have to be willing to take that take that step. Yeah, and as Charleston was sort of starting easing into it, that boom period, the chefs would complain. You get them off, you know, when they're off, you know, talking shop after after work. They're complaining about everybody just wants chicken yeah. and steak, and they and you'd hear them saying, "We're trying to get people to try this stuff." And I know at the time it's probably frustrating that you would put stuff on the menu and no one would order it. And but they would go out and sell it, and it worked. Mm-hmm. It, it really has converted what you see on menus here from what used to be that very 
the sort of almost you could guess before you walked in the restaurant what would be there to a very surprising and interesting lineup. I, I mean, do you, so it, having outlined what we what we think of Food Town requires, I mean, do you think can it be a top down movement for a city? I, I, and I think of this because you know, I just wrote about the big um, food art exhibits or Southern food art exhibit they're doing at the Museum in Myrtle Beach. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason the Chamber of Commerce had suggested that to the Art Museum is Myrtle Beach would also like to be a food city. <laughs> I mean, we'd all like to be food cities, I guess. But can they do it? Uh, nothing against the Chamber of Commerce, uh, uh, Commerce's and the Board of Tourism at, at the states and all that. I, I've never seen those kind of uh, efforts to boost a food scene work. South Carolina did a, he tried to do it here with their barbecue uh, whatever South Carolina barbecue thing was. And we have absolutely wonderful barbecue in South Carolina, but the problem is when you start dealing with the Chamber of Commerce or the State Board of Tourism, you sort of have to treat all restaurants equally, and you sort of now boost every single barbecue restaurant in the state. <laughs> right, right. And that's not really, you know, that's not really how it how it happens. I've, I've not seen that. I don't think it's a top-down effort. I don't think it's a marketing thing. You know, it's it's not just we need to brand ourselves, which is my, my <laughs> former <laughs> uh, – Hometown Columbia, South Carolina is constantly trying to rebrand itself. Right. Famously hot, it was famously <laughs> its its slogan for a long time, which I thought was at least embracing, the, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> embracing yeah, the obvious. Right. <laughs> it's hotter in hell. Yeah, but I don't think they've ever been able to brand their way into being, uh, you know, a a culinary destination. I think it, it has to happen through all these complicated steps of multiple people and multiple forces coming together and. There's no, I don't think there's a paint by numbers. Way there's to get there. not, but I think, I mean, I think what we've learned in the South over the last couple of years is it can happen quickly, yep. really quickly. You think of a place like Nashville. No oh. one ever thought about Nashville as a food town, you know, so it happens, happens very fast. Um, and, you know, and I've written before and I may have said before, usually once a city is a food city, it, it kind of stays that way. It's, it's really, I mean, unless, I remember talking to Professor David Shields about this at USC, that unless that place existed only because people were coming to the sanitaria for their tuberculosis mm-hmm. or, you know, or maybe they had like a racetrack that, the, I mean, a horse racing track that's no longer there. I mean, other than that, if it was a, a city, people would come and eat well. Yeah. They still do. Yeah, though... I'm trying to think of the there, – there are a couple of ones that uh, – and you have to go way back yeah. to, to look at ones. Uh, Baltimore is Baltimore a is an interesting one. That, that has, that's that's – I think Dave and I actually talked about Baltimore. Yeah. Baltimore is an interesting one. Baltimore in the 19th century was perhaps the premier food town in, in America. Mm-hmm. Um, New Orleans rivaled it, but, uh, but I think Baltimore probably edged it out. In fact, all the – all these Baltimore cooks actually headed north to New York and Boston because there's this period in the late 19th century where, where the Baltimore cooks, Southern cooks in general, mm-hmm. but Baltimore cooks in particular were very much in vogue and everybody wanted to eat that kind of food before French food sort of eclipsed it again. Um, and they were famed for – now part of this could be what they were famed for you can no longer sell today, right. which is canvasback duck right. and, ter- and, and green turtle or, right. or terrapin. Uh, ter- terrapin soup was the you know classic Baltimore dish. And so that may have something something to do with it. But what's curious, I spent a lot of time in Baltimore not too long ago and uh, a couple of years ago. At that time, they, they everyone was writing for the local paper, is Baltimore on the verge of becoming the next food yeah. town? And they were actually a little jealous of D.C., which is funny because of all the D.C. people who are always complaining about their town. But I really felt like the things they were playing up were – we want the same kind of fine dining restaurants as you have in New York and D.C. and Charleston uh, here in Baltimore. We can do it. Whereas 
wait a second, Baltimore has this just huge, rich food tradition. You don't even have to go back to the green turtle soup and terrible. This thing's obviously blue crab everywhere, um, but they're you know not don't necessarily have to fry it all up and, and do that. But it's you know pit beef. There's just a, such a legacy of of old Baltimore things you could draw upon. But they're they're tending to look outward and try to be like the next New York. Oh right, and I don't think that's unusual. I shared with yeah. you that story. Pete Wells had had just posted yeah. about sort of the backstory to his big um, yeah. Round it actually up depressed me, which is yeah. like it's <laughs> yeah. just not. I'm just trying to get like southern cities to to be unique, and it's it's a global problem. Well, yeah, it's a, it's the problem all over the world. So he had written he'd gone to Australia to write about I guess Sydney specifically, mm-hmm. and. You know, it, you got the sense that had he been, you know, blindfolded and turned around a few times before he walked in, he might have been eating in New York. And not because it's imitative or derivative necessarily, but for one of the reasons we talked about first on this show, there's a collegial yes. you know, community of chefs. And, I mean, they came together here in Charleston for that Eat mm-hmm. It Raw event. Some of the chefs mentioned were here for that. Um, so they have this constant conversation and... The consequence of that is fancy food, you know, in Moscow looks like fancy food in Melbourne. Yeah, and that, well, Pete, Pete Wells sort of talked about is global with local flavor, but he taps Sydney into this, I think he's a running conversation the restaurant is having with the rest of the world. And so that's truly is true. These the sort of elite chefs are running in a small circle internationally and influencing each other. A lot of the chefs in Australia actually trained in Europe or various other places and then brought that style in. Right. And the idea that conversation is not just, uh, it's, it's not a metaphor for anything. I mean, they're really on Instagram looking yeah. at what <laughs> one another is doing. I mean, it really is a, a real conversation. Uh, well, I thought it was curious is that Pete Wells sort of took a bit of a stab at trying to describe what it said. Oh, no, Sydney has its own things. He said just very briefly, they have a lot of great breakfasts and then a uh, coffee drinker. You know, right. it's, it's a great place for drinking coffee. Yeah. Not something I associate necessarily with Australia since I don't think any coffee's grown there. Indonesia is not so far Yeah, not away. so far. <laughs> but they were talking about their espresso and all right. that, which is clearly, you know, from from someplace other than uh, than 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 Australia, and they also called out the Vietnamese shops and stalls and mm. the um, what he called yum cha, which is apparently what dim sum in mm-hmm. uh, in Sydney is called, which he says is better than in New York. But again, well, New York doesn't have great dim yeah. sum. <laughs> but again, you, do, you, you know that that wouldn't be what I call. Um, a, a distinctively Australian well, thing would be the, the dim sum. I mean, sum. it could be. I mean, it does. I mean, even if 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 people come from elsewhere, if you have a you know a, a different mix, a different recipe, you know, well, if if Australia is notable because, um, and it's sort of like if you go to the, uh, I guess the Pacific thinking, Coast and, and around uh, Seattle and 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 Vancouver. They have great Chinese restaurants, and a large part of that is both because there is a, a an Asian immigration, but also a lot of tourism from China, and so so that's a great place to go eat Chinese food, for instance, in in the United States. Right. Better than China, they say. Oh, really? Because the chefs would rather live in Canada. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. there have been a lot of chefs. All I can say is, yeah, having been to China and yeah. I ate a few <laughs> places over China. there. This is yeah. a while back, yeah. um, but the one the Chinese restaurants I ate in Vancouver blew me away. They're, they're absolutely, I mean, absolutely wonderful. They're absolutely wonderful. Uh, and, yeah. they, and there was Chinese tourists all around eating. And so that is actually a distinctive thing about Vancouver. You, mm-hmm. you go there. It's not you don't have to just eat salmon. <laughs> right. Know, exactly. You, right. So that has really. I yeah. mean, it has nothing to do with the Pacific Northwest and everything to do with the Pacific yeah. Northwest. <laughs> you know, or you look at a place like the Philippines where they have both you know Spanish and Asian. You know, where these where all that comes together that doesn't happen elsewhere in the world it doesn't matter if it's this little island chain it's just it's a weird mix of influences so i think yeah i think that it 
there has to be a reason for it. Mm-hmm. I did note in the Greenville article, they quoted somebody who was talking about how good of a food city Greenville's become and said, mm-hmm. the only p- real ding she had was you can't find really good dim sum here, which apparently <laughs> has become like oh. the hallmark. Like you have to be a food city. You have to be able to get every food of the world here as if that, which strikes me as a little bit of the, like trying to go to the grocery store That's right, it's and a buy checklist. everything yeah. you want, anytime you want from around, as opposed to you need to be able to go to a city and say, when you go here, this is the kind of thing you want to eat because this is what the city is known for. I, I'm trying to think as you say that. So I, I was about to mock the idea of a checklist, <laughs> but now I'm trying to think, is there anything legitimately like we talked, as you said, in Australia it is getting a good cup of coffee. Is there any one item that without that, at least in the American context, it is not a food city? I think there's certain things now that, well, uh, to get back to what we were asked a little bit about adventurous eaters and things like that, I think to a certain degree to be a food city, you can't, you have to have people who are coming there drawn by, at least in part, because of the food. Mm-hmm. Not just, I'm here for business and therefore I'm going to go eat at the, at the chain steakhouse. But So I think the foodies coming there are people who are going to come, travel there because I've heard the food's great and I want to check it out. I think there's certain things that on their checklist you're going to have to have. Like these days, you got to have a good beer selection, good mm-hmm. local beer selection. It's like absolute. So if you go to a city and it's just your Budweiser's and Coors on, on the menu, I have a feeling that people will walk out of there saying, well, it was a really interesting whatever I ate, but you know, it's, it's, seafood, but the, the, they had no beer. That's it's so something. interesting to me you brought up a beer list because the first thing I was going to say is someone needs to be able to mix a martini. Yeah. Like you have to be, have, you have to have the classic cocktail list mastered. Um, and so it's interesting. I wonder if beverage is sort of like the canary in the coal mine here. Like you don't even have to really worry about the food. It's sort of like you, you see, it's like when you look for like evidence of global warming or, you know, it's like you see it first on the <laughs> beverage menus. Right. And and that was true for me up in Greenville. I mean, and I guess I mean, I, I think grassroots wine has something to do with the wine list at the uh, at the Anchorage. But it's like, wow, that's a wine list. Yeah. You know, yeah, I think yeah, I think you do have to sort of check the boxes on the on the alcohol these days. And I think coffee is the same way. It's hard. to I think you'd be hard pressed to impress people coming to visit if the coffee there's in the morning you just you can't get anything but you know the 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 big the, you know, industrial coffee <laughs> right. that that, that carafe, right you know, but I, so I feel like that's the test like yeah. it's not the dim sum I think your test is if you want to change like okay we've been working on this thing for a year we're trying yep. to be a food city I, I think your test is as you say like you know go into whatever's like your fourth top restaurant <laughs> on Yelp or whatever like the second top on open table ask for their beer wine and cocktail list and see where you're at and that yeah so and that is it. It makes me think of Louisville, which I've I've been spending some some, some time there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was up there last week, and we'll be going up there again next week. Um, and a town I never really explored from a food perspective. And the last time I was up there, I did a little bit of old Louisville and then a little bit of new. The old being um, places like the Brown Hotel, home with a hot brown sandwich, which which I ate. It's delicious. It's a big plate that will punch you in the stomach. It's clearly like hangover food. It's, it's very not, much that. Yeah, it's it. it I I, you know, I was not. I was neither drunk nor hungover when I ate it. No, so and I probably I, didn't I, enjoy it as much as you would. I if, feel like know. with each passing year, as it becomes more and more mythologized, I think that thing probably becomes richer and richer. Oh yeah, right? it's, it's <laughs> just, not backing it, off. It's like seven thousand calories at least. And I, I mean, I like, almost want to add at least as an addendum for a food city is exactly that. Like, I do feel like there needs to be one essential yeah, food experience. To, it's not just. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean go to a certain restaurant or hotel, but you have to eat this thing. You know, you have to drink that thing. I think, so yeah, at, while you're looking at the wine and beer list, let's let's add that to yeah, the so checklist. Yeah, so I, I went to a couple of old places. I went to the Sealbach Hotel, which we'll talk about some other time, I think, mm-hmm. because it'll take more mm-hmm. more discussion. There's a whole interesting story with the Sealbach Seal, Seal cocktail at the Sealbach Hotel. I encourage anybody who's interested in that, listen to the 
uh, Wayne Curtis's episode of Gravy, which is a couple weeks ago, uh, where he, he talks about uh, drinking myths in, in, in the seal bucket. It's, it's a fantastic story. But it's a really cool hotel dating back from the early 20th century. Brown Hotel is the same way, early 20th century hotel. Great decor and all that. And then I went to Pat's Steakhouse, which dates back to the 50s probably, mm-hmm. um, it, which I just found people saying, you know, it's like the iconic Louisville Steakhouse. And I went to it, and it is. It's it's a cool white restaurant, sort of rambling, sort of built on over over years, like white wooden exterior. Inside, it's all brown wood and all, and all that. But, you know, in terms of, and the steak was fine, but other than that, it's, a, it's, it's lifted straight out of the 70s. Mm. I mean, like the salad is, is the the iceberg <laughs> lettuce with a little, you know, everything was completely, you, you, you could have walked, actually most of the people who were dining there were eating there in the 70s. And the proprietor, whose name is Pat, uh, I, I can't remember his last name, but he's he's been around forever. He greets all the regulars, but, you know, work in the room and all that. And it's like, this is, it was really worth going. I sat in sort of the bar area. Uh, and, and just and had a steak, and, and it was it was worth it. Nothing, I don't think, uniquely Louisville about that kind of steakhouse, except it's clearly just a local institution that's been there forever. Um, and then I did some some of the newer spots that are have everyone saying now Louisville's finally going to be a food town, and they're really good. I had excellent excellent meals, but to me. You, you, you could have asked me, was I in Nashville? Was I in Charleston? Was I in Raleigh? It's the same Southern-esque farm-to-table. And I was like, well, this is great. And if I came here from Alaska or something, maybe yeah, it'd be great. But I, and I think we're, it's a little too early to know if that can evolve. You yeah. know, like, does it, does it stop right there, or is that just sort of the first step, you know? Yeah, I think so. But what I think is when tied back to the Australia discussion, what I think is really interesting about Louisville, which I learned just reading up on it as I was trying to find all the places, and I'm going to explore next time I go back, uh, my, my plan is to, to hit a different class of restaurant, because apparently it's one, it's a huge uh, immigrant destination for refugees um, oh. from uh, a large Vietnamese population. Mm. Uh, there's a, a, so apparently some really good Cuban restaurants and uh, various other ones. And so that's one where I think you could certainly have an interesting wrinkle of Louisville if you go there. You don't need to go eat the shrimp and grits or whatever that's New Southern, but maybe you go to this really great Cuban restaurant, and there's and there's a reason for that those people to be there. There's a reason for that food to be there, other than just you know it's yet another well, restaurant that opened up down the street. John T, who was on the show recently, yep. thinks that the uh, is it a Mexican? It's a Latin restaurant of some kind. He thinks it's yeah, the future of the South. Yeah, is that this, is yeah, that is, is okay. uh, <laughs> and the name escapes okay. me. It's written down in my notebook great. somewhere. <laughs> I will. Um, uh, uh, Don't worry. I will be visiting that, that next week as yeah. I as I track it down. And I think in that case as well, I don't remember exactly what what which, which country they're from, but I think it is a, re, a, a family that's sort of political refugees mm. and ended up in Louisville and have opened this really fantastic restaurant. And there's there's several stories like that that uh, in in Louisville. So I'll explore that. I'll give you a report on it. But right. I think that can help answer what makes it a food town. Mm-hmm. You know, you may have to have beer and coffee, but you need something distinctive and unique, and it needs to be a reason why it's there. Not just, it's not just there (laughs) because somebody came in and decided to open a really fancy restaurant or something like that. That's all for this edition of The Winnow. We recorded today's episode in our own little food town, the podcasting studios at the Post and Courier Building in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. If you enjoy listening to The Winnow, please help other listeners find us too. Just go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you download your podcasts and like us or leave a rating. The Winnow is a production of the Post and Courier and Palmetto New Media. Our producer today was the foodie, Jay Emery Parker. Our theme music is by the Bluestone Ramblers. 
Until next time, I'm Robert Moss. And I'm Hannah Raskin. I'll get out there and eat.